Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're joined by Myron from Toronto. We're going to talk about what he does as a partner at Miller Thompson, which is a preeminent law firm in Canada advising fintechs and financial services firms in North America. And we're going to find out what's going on in fintech M&A, what are the unique risks, some lessons learned, and also his activities in Canadian RegTech Association and a lot more. So welcome, Myron. How are you today? Rudy, thanks for having me and thanks for the invite. I'm doing well. How about yourself? Brilliant. Great to have you. Great to connect. And uh, shout out to Ferzin, by the way. So thanks for uh, you know p- putting us together. Now, first of all, let's try and clarify your backstory. Like, How did you get to do what you do, being a technology or financial services or fintech M&A lawyer? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Rudy. And I, I it's a short but interesting story. So I, I really started out in business. My area of interest was generally corporate work, but I was always had a strong interest in technology generally. So any real opportunity I had to work with technology companies, whether it's uh, emerging companies or existing technology companies, or even for more traditional businesses looking to purchase, acquire, or, or work with technology companies, I, I always jumped on those opportunities. And it was really an effort to meld the, meld the two worlds. It's really supporting technology companies and, and the parties who are looking to do business with them and learning about cool technology opportunities. Because I think everyone in the technology or the fintech space, if you want to get a bit more narrower, is exposed to these individuals or companies with really cool ideas. It's good, it's unique, and I think once you start doing a few of these deals, you learn about and understand the unique operations of technology companies, and you understand, particularly for Fentech, the unique issues and, and regulatory environments these organizations face. You can bring those learnings to your advice and guidance. All right, brilliant. As I mentioned, you're a partner at, at Miller Thompson. So what's your firm? approach regarding advising fintechs. Obviously, I mentioned M&A, I guess I'm quite biased towards that, but there are a lot of other transactions and potentially legal needs that the fintechs can have. Let's say they are raising money or they need a license, uh, God forbid. So what do you focus on? Yeah, no, that's a, a fantastic question, Rudy, because it's, there's a lot going on with a technology company. So I'll start off by providing a bit of an overview about what I do. I'm a corporate lawyer that supports technology companies. So that's in a nutshell of, of what I do. And also I support companies that acquire or invest. This includes really a strategic acquirer of technology companies. I work a lot with venture capital and private equity funds, as well as tech companies themselves. But to technology companies, it's really the gamut. It's getting them investment ready and supporting all stages of their life cycle. This includes IPOs, so going public transactions, and just operations of their business or vendors looking to exit the business. And then for VC funds and PE funds, 
it's acquiring or investing in technology companies. The good thing is I've got a balance between buyer, investor, and company side, which gives me a bit of an understanding of, of what both sides are looking for when negotiating it. So that's what I do. My firm, Miller Thompson, as you mentioned, is a national Canadian firm with a deep expertise in all sectors. We essentially have a lot of big strength in all of the practice areas that a company needs put together and support our clients with multidisciplinary teams. So for technology, media, and telecommunications companies, and M&A particularly, involving fintechs and other entities, we're looking at parties and, and uh, lawyers in, in various areas that really become relevant to technology companies. So it's your traditional corporate people like myself, but you also need to bring in people with expertise in data privacy, IP, competition law. So we tax as well. So we really run the gamut of what we are here to support. And we have a team ready to support in all aspects of a company. So you mentioned investors, the incumbents, the technology companies, but where in the life cycles do, do they have to be? Do you only advise scale-ups or you know how does that work? Because of course, you are a big firm, so you, you may be expensive for just a couple of guys from the garage, right? Yeah, no, exactly. So we tend to sit in the middle market space as well. So we do advise scale-ups. I think once you get past a certain point where growth, where you're looking at doing a Series C or a Series A in the future, we do have a startup program, it's called MTech, that we, we do offer for that market where there, there are options. But we typically will be looking for companies who are and work with companies from emerging scale-ups all the way through to multinationals. So it's not, it's not a, a, a specific sector per se, but it's a wide variety of companies. We do provide very sophisticated advice, so do work with companies at the, the, the larger scale. All right, understood. So what are the specifics of the fintech M&A? Because years ago, the big investment banks and law firms, they had financial services practice, they would have technology practice, but of course, the fintech didn't exist. So what's specific when you talk about a crossover between financial services and tech? and therefore a fintech. Yeah, no, it's uh, really make a great point, as, uh, as I'm sure you and your listeners know. Financial technology, has, as you mentioned, flourished in the past uh, 10 to 15 years. Fintech companies themselves offer attractive growth opportunities when compared to traditional incumbents, really due to their flexibility and strategy and de development and deployment of technology. We've really seen a rapid development of solutions that are in some ways customer-centric uh, and things that really can't be produced or developed internally within existing financial services providers and, and banks and financial institutions. And I think it's really a, a cultural difference between the two. So you've, you're just seeing a massive shift in, in where technology is coming from. And it's really across the board with fintech. We're seeing companies deploying AI solutions that can be used for fraud detection or customer service and remittance tools in the wealth management space. There's been a, a massive growth with technology companies showing innovative solutions, which are highly scalable. And this has been a very attractive investment opportunity or an acquisition target for both financial institutions and private equity firms and, and venture capital firms. We see ourselves as providing corporate services with a strong understanding of the industry in which these companies offer. So you're really melding the two. I think for technology M&A generally, you really need to understand 
not only the industry, but also the products and the operations of the business. It differs greatly from a traditional organization and, and really the risks, and we'll get into that in a moment, some of the risks that are relevant, but the risks profile does change dramatically. And as far as what I've seen in the past, in the past few years, if we're talking about the shorter term, while we did see deal activity slow down in the first part of 2020 due to COVID, the tools that are being created in the financial technology sector are really those that can support the work from home and social distancing uh, requirements that so um, society has, has really seen. So we've seen a continuation of flourishing of the activity. You mentioned the risks, and of course, you're a lawyer, so you need to highlight risks to their, your clients and ideally provide some solutions as well. So what are the specific risks uh, related to fintech M&A or fintech sector? Yeah, no, that's a great point. We, we do love risk, and risk aversion is, is probably how I'd better describe it. So really, I, I think this, if we talk about the risk too as well, is, is and the challenges for financial institution and, and banks too as well is that these organizations aren't always the best place to develop innovative solutions and disruptive technologies due to their corporate structure or internal pressure and just their regulatory burdens that they're, they're familiar with. Fintechs have come along and really do allow for a bit more of an innovative approach just because they don't have those confines around them and, and they offer significant upside in a number of areas. The risk though being is, is that structure, that scalability, that, that fast pace doesn't always fit well and causes a number of operational challenges. So but for financial institutions too and banks, it's absolutely critical that diligence is done at various stages of, of the transaction. And I really group those into business diligence, and legal diligence. For financial institutions and banks, the, the reputational risk of, of non-compliance or acquiring a technology that puts them offside their, their regulatory obligations is significant. This can include data breaches into their systems. It's a very important sector for them. When you're thinking about some of the specific risks that financial institutions and banks should be aware of, and also private equity firms who are looking to purchase these, these uh, providers, there's a few of them. So the first bucket is the regulatory sites, antitrust. Is there going to be any objections in, from, from what we have in Canada, the Competition Bureau, to the acquisition? And what other regulatory approval will be required for the transaction? And within that realm, you've got to also think about technology being falling within the guise of a national security concern. So cybersecurity is one of the aspects that falls within that guise. So taking a step back before you enter into the, the transaction to understand what steps need to be met and what hurdles need to be met to allow for the transaction. So it's considering that in those early diligence stages before the transaction continues. Another aspect is an understanding from the banks and financial institutions that a fintech may be a, a relatively immature business and hasn't fully understood what requirements fall within the, within the financial services sector. So there's a number of issues relating to how the solution is created, developed, and deployed, and then how the solution functions. So on the functioning side, it's just making sure that the solution meets regulatory requirements and it isn't at risk of any data breaches for once you integrate it into the system. Because sometimes once it comes under the umbrella of the, of the financial institutions, remedying an issue may be costly or 
just not an option. So that's absolutely critical there. And then on the, the development side, and this isn't unusual for all technology companies, you really need to dig into who owns the technology and ensuring that there is chain of title with the fintech to whomever has created it. And there's not also third-party technology integrated into it, such as open source like issues that could exist too. So there's a number of really important factors and ways really to address those through diligence, reps and warranties. And we always suggest rep and warranty insurance. So you actually have somebody to be able to, to fund those issues too. So there's many different factors in there. And these are on top of the more operational discussions about challenges and in meeting and, and agreeing to evaluation of the company. Because as we know, fintech M&A and fintech companies tend to attract a higher valuation as compared to, to other startups based on the industry in which they operate. And then you have obviously the integration issues post-transaction. So there's, there's a number of things and risks that really need to be addressed. And I, I know this was a long-winded way of saying it, is, is, but taking the time initially before the transaction closes is fundamental to these deals. And for the fintech, it's understanding what, the, what your acquirer, so bank financial institution, is looking for is critical too. Right. And it used to be that the fintechs or the startups would exit through a trade route or they would uh, go public now perhaps you don't need to do you don't need to follow the traditional ways of doing things so what has happened is that the average time to go public has increased tremendously so how do you see this what's your view on this and where do you think we are headed obviously Part of that, it could be a regulatory burden. The other one would be the rise of alternative capital, democratization of access of the, to alternative capital. And maybe it is the, the nature of the industry sometimes that people need more time to develop truly scale and potentially go global. What is your view on, let's say, the, the average time to go public that has increased so much in the past few decades? Yeah, really. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I think one of the big things is is access to alternative forms of capital. Now, I'll, I will premise this by saying in 2021, we have seen a flurry of activity of going public transactions, particularly in the US via SPACs. Now, that's started to trail off. And I think we're seeing a bit more of a, a reevaluation or reflection of the market. And I think this is due to, to various factors, and including inflationary risks. But you are seeing a bit of a slowdown in capital markets. But yeah, no, to answer your question, technology companies now have a significant number of sources of financing. And I think that's one of the big drivers. There's more capital available in the private sector, whether it's via equity or debt. You're seeing a lot more appetite of investors investing in tech companies. This includes private equity, venture capital funds, re even retail investors, angels, and even traditional financial institutions or traditional companies investing via a private equity arm or a division within their company. So the access to capital is immense. And I think if you couple that with a dramatic reduction in the costs associated with deploying your, your startup. I think we've seen services such as Amazon AWS have, have dramatically reduced the cost of deploying a, a solution. So just lower barriers of, of entry. So there's less requirements of capital in those earlier stages. And as you mentioned too, as well, there's more of a, an appetite for lenders to make funds available to tech companies. Lenders are getting a bit more creative with what they'll, uh, what they'll lend against. 
So it's not just assets, it's MRR or monthly recurring revenue. There's also venture debt available too as well. So looking at the companies and being a bit more creative, I think there's just more capital available. So turning over to M&A again, where do you see most of the M&A in fintech happening now? What sort of situations are the most common? What you're seeing a few different aspects of it. You are seeing fintechs consolidating. So you're seeing fintechs buying other fintechs. You can imagine that some of the challenger banks are so well financed now that they have capital available and, and they're acting similar to existing financial institutions when they're making acquisition targets, where they're looking to buy companies to expand their, their real digital services offering or looking for other revenue sources. And, and fintechs are taking that same approach. The other one, which is, is interesting is there's different reasons to buy a fintech. So it's expanding your product offering. It's looking for other solutions, but it's also the value of the data collected by the, by the uh, fintech itself. So you may be just buying the entity for the data. Now, when you're thinking about purchasing it for the data, you have to be a bit careful because you have to confirm that they got the data in a legally sound way, because if not, then it's essentially useless to you. So that's another part of diligence there. But there's other reasons for these for this activity happening. And honestly, because of one and two that we've just discussed, private equity funds are looking at these companies and seeing the attractive targets with significant upside. Because as we've discussed, there is a premium on fintechs just because of the industry they operate in and just the level of interest. And private equity funds see these as as good targets, which they can clean up and and and, uh, and sell at a, a higher margin once uh, once they get to that stage. So obviously, you are based in Canada, but you also work a lot with with the US. So are there any notable differences that people should be aware of when they looking at M and A in North America? So a lot of my work is cross border M and A, whether it's Canadian companies buying and targets in the US or US companies buying Canadian companies on both sides of the coin and. So I'm quite familiar with both markets. As far as historically with technology companies, if you go back 10 years, Canadian technology companies would look south to raise funds and in some instances wouldn't move their operations down to the States. And that was just based on the fact that there wasn't as much capital to these companies to more recently. And I say recently, we're going back a number of years now, Canada has seen a, a boom in technology companies staying here. And... It's really based on, and I'll talk about Toronto for now, but you can replicate this to Montreal or Vancouver or other Canadian cities. Toronto continues to be one of the fastest growing cities for tech, and it's driven by a number of things, but we have a very strong pool of skilled professionals, and the cost of access to this labor tends to be less expensive than in the US. We also have a number of government incentives at the earlier stages and initiatives too as the company grows that make it more of an attractive place to set up tech companies in Canada. So we've just seen a, a big shift in that where companies are being here. And there's also a mind shift in the approach of uh, US private equity and, and venture capital funds and other companies who are now extremely open and will on a day-to-day -day come up to Canada and acquire these companies. It's not like a discussion initially where you need to move down to the down to the states, and we'll then have a discussion. It's now no, they'll come up here, and it's a routine basis. And I have a number of Canadian companies who do 
serial acquisitions of US companies. So it's interesting because we've become a lot more borderless. Now, there are some tax consequences and, and other matters which are very applicable and, and relevant to how these deals are structured. But you're definitely seeing a more activity between the two. And if we talk about some of the major differences are is between M&A and, and the two in the two countries, I think in in Canada, as you expect, we're a bit we're a bit friendlier. Liability and risk were a bit more. We have a bit more appetite to it. While in the states, it's it's more litigious, so there's a bit less of it. So there are some some cultural differences which do bleed into the documentation. But as a whole, the process of acquisition remains quite constant. Now it's it's application of unique laws which requires different aspects. But you do tend to get the other side. The only thing I'll add is I think you get more favorable valuations in Canada for acquirers. So that's why another reason we're seeing a, a big push for private equity and venture capital to come to Canada. And you also work with the Canadian RegTech Association, right? What are the hottest Canadian RegTechs that you have come across recently, if you can mention a few? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of them are in the uh, a few different sectors. And I think uh, best answer this question by, by sector-specific opportunities. I think uh, we're seeing a lot of entities in the anti-money laundering space as well and fraud protection, really applying unique technology to these. So whether it's blockchain money uh, for money laundering or fraud detection itself, or it's AML using AI and other technologies. I think this is a, a massive change or even RPA for that purpose too as well. So it, it's really, there's a number of really cool companies and organizations who are growing in this space. We have, a, we have a, an established and mature financial uh, services industry in Canada. So there's a lot of opportunities there. But I would say companies who are applying new and novel technologies are, are really seeing an ups, uptick right now. All right. You also mentioned already that uh, lawyers seem to love risks, right? So maybe that's why you also work with Wembley Partners, that is a cybersecurity company. So very often you see technology developing much faster than the legal framework. And uh, that has many reasons, but generally the legal framework is catching up with the innovation. So if you look at latest cybersecurity issues, do you think that you can use effectively the existing legal framework to guide these issues and and resolve them? Or are they some significant gaps that you wish they were plugged as soon as possible? That's a great question, Rudy, and, and you're correct. Yeah, I serve as a, a director for, for Wembley Partners. And it's, uh, it's an interesting space in that there's a few issues with trying to govern for cyber. And there's a discussion about whether being prescriptive is the way to go. I think, or at least my thoughts on this are that Cyber is ever-evolving. We've seen over the years, we've seen an uprise in, in data breaches and, and hacks as well of services. We're, we're seeing new and novel technology coming through, such as quantum computing, which will shake the trees on that. So having a legal framework that is too prescriptive becomes outdated. And that's in whatever industry you're talking about. I think for, for cyber, that's the issue too. One point that I think is absolutely critical is that some of these legal frameworks, they apply across the board to various companies operating in every industry. And I think while it's all well and good to say one of the large financial institutions can meet and match these legal frameworks, it becomes tricky for smaller players in the industry to match it. And I think that's where these legal frameworks can catch up certain entities. Now, 
I think there's a, a major push for threat detection and managed services of cybersecurity, which I think as these become more complex, mid-market organizations will need to adopt. Essentially outsourcing your cybersecurity and threat detection to a point is going to be the way to go because uh, as threats develop, the legal framework we have is going to become more and more complex. And the issue with any legal framework is, and we see it in Canada with our privacy laws, is they were made for a different time. So the language becomes, in some ways, in certain instances, archaic if it's too prescriptive. Now, I think we have more of a principle-based approach to, to our privacy laws in Canada, but you can sometimes move too far in another direction and you're trying to address things that were relevant a long time ago. Principle-based versus prescriptive. That's good advice for any lawmakers out there, I think, in many jurisdictions, frankly. All right, wonderful. So as we wrap up, I just have two questions left for you. One, ideally easy, but maybe challenging, because if you're a lawyer, you read lots of documents. So I'm not sure you still have appetite to read books. But is there any favorite business book related to what we just discussed that you could recommend? Yeah, so it, it's one of those things where, from my perspective, uh, a good book on negotiations, I think, is always a good option to as well. I think it's a critical book to, to be involved in. And I think there's a few out there that, that kind of fit that relate to as well on controlling negotiations. But I, I will say it's a bit unrelated to this, but a, a book I've read recently was was Jim Collins's Update to Good to Great, which is, I think it's great by choice, uncertainty, chaos, and luck, and why some thrive despite them all, was a very interesting read. This isn't a plug for Jim Collins. I have no affiliation, but I did enjoy the read. It was interesting and it was good to see an update to a, a book I did enjoy before. That's maybe a bit dated just because of if you look through some of the companies in the first book there, some of them aren't even around. So it was a bit of an update to that. Oh, wow. That's uh, that's great to, to know. So thanks for a reminder because I read the you know the earlier version. It's great that there is an update there. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Now, one last question is, what's the best way to reach out and find out about what you do at Miller Thompson? Yeah, no, and really, I just want to say thanks for having me. This has been an absolute pleasure and I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Best way to reach out to me is probably through LinkedIn or my firm's website. It's Miller Thompson. And if you search Myron Malia there, you'll find me. But LinkedIn's always a good option. Feel free to reach out, start a conversation, whether it's about fintech or otherwise. Great. Thanks so much and good luck, Myron. Thanks so much, Rudy. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests, or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.